of things that's hindered the church for years and years that I just want to share with y'all. By the way, don't y'all appreciate Matthew? It's a whole lot better than me up here singing. One of the things that's hindered the church for years and years is this idea that somehow reverence for God means devoid of excitement or joy. We seem to have no problem going to a football game and yelling and being excited and jumping around like little kids. But when it comes to church, it's supposed to be something painful that we don't enjoy and that you try your hardest not to sleep through. You know, I mean, and, and all of us have been there. I mean, I, I remember falling asleep on the hard pew and being thumped on the head to, to wake up, and there's a six-foot-tall icicle standing up there preaching. And uh, I don't believe church is supposed to be that way. Uh, we've got a handful here, and I know that. But I really think that church ought to be the kind of thing that you look forward to, that you're excited. You know what? All of us have been at times in our life in a place where we were not serving God like we should have been. And I think at least a few of us in here have been under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> and you know what happens? You get a little drunk. You get a little excited. All of a sudden, you can solve the world's problems. You have a joy you didn't have before. You feel a freedom to dance. You're not all that worried about what people think. Why is it that the world gets to have all of that fun? You know, there was a day of Pentecost where God poured His Spirit into the church. And everybody thought they were drunk because they were having so much fun. It should still be that way. You know, and I know. I mean, this is challenging. We, we got four, just a few of us standing next to each other, you know, and none of us can seem to clap in rhythm. And, you know, there, it's not like there's an overhead and we don't know the songs. And I'm about four years out of practice. But the attitude still needs to be the same. Fight off those feelings that, oh, this is awkward and what is somebody going to think? And, or this is not church like I'm used to church. It's okay. I, I'll be honest. Church, the way it happens in most places, is not pleasing to God. If that sounds judgmental, I'm sorry. It, it's for sure not pleasing to me, so a church I'll, I'm in will never be that way. And secondly, when people leave and they're unchanged and they're unmoved, I don't believe that that's what God intended to happen. We are life-changing ministries, and that's because I believe God is in the life-renovating business. He can take people that are thrown away by the world, trash of society, and recycle them and use them for His purposes, and I'm one of them. So I can get a little excited about that. I want to tell you a little bit about the vision of our church, and this is something I'm going to share a lot. But we believe here that it's God's desire to touch each person's life. This ministry will do whatever it takes to minister to an individual. And the idea being that as that individual life begins to change, they then go and minister to other people and those lives change. And that this will be a process that catches on. Jesus said that it would be like yeast that works its way through a whole batch of dough. Where that comes from is about ten years ago, I was born again. And my cry to God was, Lord, change me. And boy, did He. I mean, has it been turbulent? Those of you that have known me, I've, I've been called everything from Jimmy Swagger to David Koresh. To, and some, some of it's compliments and some of it's cursing. And I, that's okay. But I'm going to be a fanatic about something. I'm going to be a fanatic about Jesus. He's totally changed my life. And I love it. I'm excited. In keeping with this idea of the vision, I want to explain how this works in the church. Basically, 
what the pastors are doing. And Matthew will be a pastor in this church as it grows. Matt, Matt is a pastor in this church. He and I are co-laborers here. He, he can do things that I can't do, and we're, I can do things he can't do, and we're called to build a church together. It will one day extend way beyond these walls, and I know that in a lot of ways, spiritually and naturally. But what it amounts to is kind of like a pilot and a co-pilot on a plane. We're responsible for hearing from God, or the control tower, if you will. What altitude we're supposed to fly, what direction we're supposed to be going. And from time to time, the Lord may even warn us, oh, you need to steer away from that, or you need to go around this, just like a control tower would tell two pilots. I'm giving you this in natural terms because I want you to understand our relationships, how this is supposed to work. But on a plane, there's not just two pilots. There's passengers. That's the congregation. Those are the people that show up and are in the seats because they're interested in where the plane's going. They believe that the pilots have heard from the control tower. They believe it's going to reach a certain destination. That's the will of God. There's other people on a plane, too. That's the help staff, the stewards, the, the serving staff, if you will. These are the other people that are in ministry. Right now, it's our wives. You know, this, These are the ones that I'm hoping as the storms and trials of life come to you, you'll be able to watch their example and say, wow, when Jennifer saw that Eric lost his job, she wasn't crushed by that. Instead, she took that to the Lord in prayer. I saw her with joy even when she was insulted. The same way that on an airplane as a passenger, you look and you see the stewardess showing you how to do the belts and how to breathe and all of those things. I'm convinced that most people panic when trouble comes because they were never there for the instruction. You know, when the plane's about to crash or they feel like the plane of their life's about to crash, they never watched the demonstrations. They don't know how to put the secure the air mask on their face properly, you know? So when we're here, understand, if at some point you say, hey, you know what, I, I don't believe that Eric and Matthew are leading the church in the right direction, it's okay, you're just on the wrong plane. You know, this, you, you need to catch a flight somewhere else. And if at some point you're here and you say, you know, I, I don't like, they brought in drums, and I can't believe they brought, that's okay. The in-flight movie's not for everyone, you know. <laughs> I mean, that, that's really the attitude we need to take with this. But if you are behind us, if you believe in the vision of the church, then be a helpful part of it in every way you can. I don't want to get all JFK-ish about this, but a church really is an environment where you're not supposed to be looking for what the church can do for you. It's a community of believers that are looking to see what they can do for the church. The entire kingdom of God is based on servanthood, every bit of it. The problem with the problem with Americans in general, people around the world, but I'm most familiar with Americans, and my generation worst of all, is we have more than our parents did at times. We have bigger houses, more cars, more things, more stuff. We pull up at one window and order, at the next window we get it. We're impatient, we're greedy, we're all of those things. And then when we're told by an ancient text based on a first century Galilean Jew's life, that you have to serve the least, we're only willing to do that if we have certain benefits. Well, I'll serve as long as everybody knows what I'm doing. I'll serve as long as everybody understands it was me who did it. You know, those kind of, we have to shed all of that here. You know, and if you can't do it in a 
little garage that was turned into a church. You'll never do it in the world. I was worshiping last night with some friends in here. I'm going to put a sign above the door that says, Live out there what you've practiced in here. This church will be a huddle of sorts. This is where we're going to gather to hear the plays that our coach has given us. When we break huddle, that's not the end of the game. We're going out to the field of life to rep these things, to love when nobody else will love. That's, that's what we're called to do. That's, that's the vision of the church. Jesus uh, is clearly and distinctly different from the other gods. You say, other gods? There are other gods? Yeah, they're all kind of spiritual powers. The Bible teaches there's one God above every God, but there are all kind of things in the heavens. This is where the Greeks got the idea of a pantheon. It's perverted. It's not correct. But there is more than one spiritual power out there. Think about angels. Think about demonic powers. There are other powers that are out there, but Jesus is clearly distinct among the gods. I want to read you something that I thought spoke well about this, this topic. A guy named Spiros Zodhades is a Bible scholar that I've come to respect some of his work. My pages are falling out of the book. But listen to what he wrote. It says, A native of interior China wanted to become a Christian, but couldn't understand how Christianity was superior to Confucianism and Buddhism. One morning he came to the missionary in a happy mood, saying, before I tell you what happens, he was at a place where he was honestly saying, look, I think that uh, this Christian thing's interesting, but I also think Buddhism's interesting. I think Confucianism is interesting. That's a whole lot more honest than most people in this country are. We all claim to be Christians because it's the popular thing to do. Eighty percent of our country does. But in reality, we do not live like Christ at all. And then we claim to be a Christian. Friends, that was never Jesus' intent. It's kind of like Gandhi said. I've examined Christianity and Christ I like. It's the Christians I have a problem with. You know? You know, the biggest thing that keeps people from coming to Jesus are the people that call themselves by His name. You know? You ever been outside of a church parking lot when a hundred cars pull out and not one will let you out in traffic, but they've been in there learning to die to self? Get to the Piccadilly line and, uh, you know, somebody will turn around and shoot you the bird because you stepped in front of them in line. And yet Jesus taught a gospel that said, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. If they want you to go with them one mile, go with them two. If somebody wants your shirt, give them your jacket as well. You know, we need to begin to act like Jesus. If we do that, you know what? We'll see the same results He did. But the power of God will never be among us if we don't act like Jesus. Well, this, this native of interior China was in a place where he wanted to know. He said, hey, what's the difference? He came and told this missionary, I dreamed last night and now I understand. I dreamed I'd fallen into a deep pit where I lay helpless and despairing. And can anybody relate to that? I've been in a pit in my life at times where I, you know, I didn't know how we were going to get out. I remember even in Christ when I was first married. You know, I was looking at some of the financial obligations and things that were there, and I can't control this woman that I'm married to, and this baby will not quit crying, and I didn't know how those relationships worked. You know, the world said, oh, well, screw all of that. Go find you another one. Start again somewhere. I mean, that's, that's the attitude that's out there. I felt like I was in a deep pit, and I was despairing. But listen about this Jesus we serve. 
Confucius came and said, let me give you advice, my friend. If you get out of your trouble, never get in it again. Now, isn't that some worldly advice? Mandy, you've screwed up here, sweetheart. Try not to do that again, okay? Have you heard that kind of advice? That, that's how Confucius spoke to the man in his dream. Buddha came and said, If you can climb up to where I can reach you, I will help you. Well, that's, that's the otherworldly thought that's out there. If you could just be more like me, if you could just strive to the heights that I've striven to, then, I mean, this is all the self-help stuff you see on TV. It's Tony Robbins and the weird dude bald with a, the big white beard and all of those people. That's exactly what it is. Listen to how Jesus came. Then Jesus came, and he climbed down into the pit, and he carried me out. See, we need to be the kind of people that don't just tell people, oh, you made a mistake. You need to not make that mistake again. We don't need to be the kind of people that says, oh, you bad people out there just need to be like us good people. We need to be the kind that are willing to get right down in someone's sin with them and help them find a way out of it. That's why... you know, you say, oh, but he's a he's a crack addict. How could you let your kids be around? How could you? I'm not talking about being stupid, but at the same time, if you're not willing to associate with people of low character, if you're not willing to help people that cannot help themselves, how are you at all like Jesus? Because Jesus does for us exactly what we can't do for ourselves. He'll help you out of a pit you can't get out of. More than that. We have the idea that, well, they don't deserve it. Well, you haven't deserved any of the kind things Jesus has done for you. Jesus never gives people what they deserve. He gives them what they need. And we need to be that way too. Somebody may deserve a slap on the face, but what they need is a hug. And you need to be like Jesus and do that. In this native of interior interior China's eyes, there was a clear and distinct difference between the religions he was aware of in Jesus. We need to make a clear and distinct difference in our presentation of the gospel to the world. Turn with me to James 5. And if for some reason you don't want to turn or don't have a Bible, that's okay. I'll read it to you and I rarely ever lie when I'm preaching. So, <laughs> Sorry. James 5, starting verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us. When you think about these people we're going to read about today, it's important that you remember They were men and women just like us. We have the idea when we think of St. Peter or St. Paul, we elevate them to this religious icon status where they are above us. We, We forget that the Bible says they were just like us. The reason that's important is because if you elevate these people to a level that's unobtainable to you, you excuse yourself from having to follow their example and act like them. We're not going to do that. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Our goal in life needs to be that our actions would represent a clear decision to people about Jesus. That when they think about you, they think about, wow, that person is different than the other people that I meet. Because when I've insulted them, when I've been ugly to them, they've been kind to me. 
When I needed, they helped me. When they didn't have, they were still selfless about helping me. They need to see Jesus in us. It needs to be clear and distinct in their minds. You ought to be thinking about it in your daily life. If you're going through your work, is this how everybody else would handle it? Literally, like the little bracelet says, what would Jesus do here? And that ought to help govern your actions. Sometimes the way that we, we go through life is we say, well, a lot of people would have hit that guy. I didn't, so I did good. We don't need to measure ourselves to other people. We don't even need to measure ourselves by ourselves. Paul says that's not wise. The standard is, am I presenting Jesus clearly and distinctly to everyone that I meet by my actions? Have you noticed that there's a church on every corner in this area? Every corner. You know, There's a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes it's that they can't get along and they split up. That happens. You know, It's sad, but it's true. Sometimes it's that one says the T's crossed, the other says no, the I's dotted, and that, that causes church splits. But another reason is people are shopping for any kind of gospel that they would want. Well, I want a gospel that says we can dance. Another one says, well, I want a gospel that says we can't. Well, I want to drink. Well, I don't want to drink. And, and we are trying to conform God's Word into our image. And we're doing it under the auspices of that's your interpretation. Friends, I've read this book from cover to cover quite a few times now. There are not very many scriptures that are ambiguous in their terp- interpretation at all. The, way, the reason it's made that way is because men don't like what it says. The Bible is very clear. We need to present Jesus clearly. Turn to 1 Kings. You remember that Elijah has said that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years? Elijah was a prophet of God, and he had an unpopular message. Sometimes the message that God will give you for people is an unpopular one. He got to stand up and tell the entire nation of Israel, because you guys are wicked, because you refuse to serve God, though he's made himself plain to you. It's not going to rain here except at my command. Now, that was fine the first week it didn't rain, and it was fine the first month it didn't rain. But when a drought and a famine came, all of a sudden Elijah was not a real popular guy. Something I, I want to just point out, early on in, in Kings, 1 Kings 17, it says that Elijah was fed by ravens. This is something that's touched my heart. Do you know that ravens are unclean birds? A Jew was not allowed to even touch a raven according to the Mosaic law. It was an unclean bird. And yet God uses these ravens to feed him. Sometimes we need to get out of our little religious box of what we think God will and won't do. We need to give Him the freedom to be God in our lives and not constrain Him. I'll tell you, in this ministry so far, it has not been those that are pristine and white and clean. You know, the doves of the world that have sown into this ministry. You know who it's been? It's been the unlikely sources. It's been the people that the religious world would throw away, but that Jesus is desperately seeking. By the way, this message this morning is going to be called Ten Things That I Love About You. So you can write that at the top. I say all that just to say Jesus values the ones that the church doesn't value. And I do too. I noticed when I read through the Bible the first time something that stood out to me more than anything else is Jesus was downright hostile towards the religious people of His day. The only ones that He seemed overly patient with because, I mean, Jesus seemed to be fairly curt at times with a lot of people. 
The only ones he seemed to be overly patient with were the ones that were fully aware that they needed his help. You know, I've had five husbands, and the man I'm living with now is not my husband. Jesus spent all day hanging out with her at the well, telling her about himself. But the guy that had it all together shows up, and Jesus talks to him in riddles. I've been studying the Bible for ten years now, and I just now think I have a handle on what he was saying to him. You know? Jesus could go as deep as anybody wanted to go. He hides himself. He hides his ways from those that think that they're wise. But he openly reveals himself to anyone who is willing to just come and say, I'm sick and I need a doctor. Okay, we're in uh, Kings 18, verse 16. This is Elijah on Mount Carmel. I've been to Mount Carmel in Israel, and this is a pretty neat scene. If you can imagine... The uh, Valley of Jezreel is close by. Uh, the Valley of Megiddo that we get the word Armageddon from is close by. And this mountain is a high peak where everybody would be able to see you. You know, It's kind of like standing out there for, for the whole nation to see where Elijah is. It says, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? It's always been interesting to me that I could have been in topless bars. I could have been in pornography. I could have been smoking dope. And people would say, oh, well, you know, to each their own. But when I fell in love with Jesus and began to talk about sin and being convicted, all of a sudden I fell into a troubler category, you know. I could sit on a job site and read my Bible and somebody said, oh, you know, this guy thinks he's better than us. He's stealing from the company. He's not working. He's, he's sitting over there reading his Bible. But somebody could be sitting right next to me reading a Hustler magazine, and he's a great guy. Could be drinking beer out of his lunchbox, and that's no problem. Why is it that when you try to do something for God, people call you a troubler? Well, it's because you're going to meet resistance from an enemy. And just like Jesus, if he wants to accomplish something on the earth, uses people to do it, when Satan wants to oppose the work of God on earth, he uses people to do it. I encourage you all to go see the movie Passion when it comes out. When the devil stood toe-to-toe with Jesus, and actually his life was taken from him, it was not the devil who did that. He used wicked men to kill Jesus. God uses men who are yielding to him for righteousness to heal to bind up, to raise the dead, to do all kind of things. The devil has people at his disposal too. Now nobody ever admits to that, but the bottom line, kind of like Bob Dylan's six years of salvation, he's saying you're going to have to serve someone. Everybody is on one team or the other. Israel's fixing to find themselves in that position. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Baals just means the demonic powers is basically what he's saying. It literally means you followed the, the lords, the sirs. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver? Between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. There are only two possibilities out there. One is that you will follow Jesus with all of your heart, and the other is that you won't. 
and what the Bible actually teaches, especially if you read the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, is if you are not submitted to the Spirit of God, you are submitted to the prince of the power of the air who is causing people to be disobedient. There are only two teams to play for, and it's not possible to ride the fence. You're either submitted to the Spirit of God or you're submitted to the enemy. This is why Jesus was able to look at the Pharisees and said, your father's the devil. And these were good people. They're people that we would associate with. You know, if they lived today, they'd have a three-piece suit on and a tie and give alms to the poor. And Jesus said that their father was the devil. That's because they were not submitted to the Spirit of God. They had their own way of doing things, and they refused to change. Hence, the heart of our ministry is life-changing ministries. There's a way that seems right to me. But the Bible says, in the end, the way that seems right to me leads to destruction, leads to death. I want the way that God reveals that I should do. Pretty well, as far as I can tell, since the very beginning, when man's been given the choices, the opportunity to make a choice, when he first got the knowledge that there was good out there and there was evil out there, he's never chosen wisely. I'm going to give up that right. I'm not going to have to choose what is good and what is bad. I'm going to be ignorant of what is bad and say, God, show me the good I should do today. People think of Christians as what people who don't drink, don't smoke, don't steal. And by the way, I'm a Christian who does drink. And I know Christians who do smoke. And they're not bad people. And I don't even think they're out of the will of God. But they list Christians by what they don't do. I'm personally of the opinion that Christians are people who do certain things, not people who don't do certain things. There's a Mormon church right down the road where they don't do all kind of things. And they're not Christians. Some of our Islamic fundamentalist fanatical friends that are strapping plastic explosives to themselves and blowing themselves up, they live fairly moral lives. That does not mean that they are living within the will of God. Today what I want to present to you is there's two opinions that you can waver between. You can follow God with all your heart, meaning that you will do His will in your life as it's revealed to you, or you can choose not to. But the people said nothing. There's a strange silence over Israel when Elijah told them this. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let us choose one for themselves. <laughs> let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it to the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and will put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. This is where Paul tells even the Christian church, it's good that there's differences among you. God will show who He favors. I'm not suggesting that you go cut up the family bull, that you put it outside. we got a, a Buddhist on this street. We have... Hindus on this street. I'm not going to be in the cul-de-sac tomorrow with Matt's family dog cutting it up into pieces and asking God to burn it. You know what this is? This is present your case clearly. I'm following Jesus. You examine my life. You follow whoever you want to follow. I will examine your life. And in the end, as we go, let's see who God favors. That's, that's what this is. The God who shows up in the person's life 
by fire. That's the God you should serve. I give you a great, great example. Those of you that were are now mature enough to have lived through the 60s and 70s saw the infusion of the Eastern religions come into this country, right? For the first time in places in California, you could see Americans dressed like Southeast Asianers following around animals and talking about reincarnation and smoking lots and lots of dope. How well has their God come through for their country? We're the most blessed nation on the planet, and we are still disobedient to God. But because there is a remnant of people here that do really love the Lord and are sending out missionaries all over the earth, God has blessed our country among every other nation in the whole world. Now, I'm patriotic, but I'm not. If anything, I have a somewhat negative view of our country. But I can still recognize God's hand is upon us. All I'm saying is that the choice needs to be clear in our lives. People should see the presence of God by what you do. Now, here's the real thing. Elijah is going to put himself at a huge disadvantage. He's, going, he's already won against 850 people. He's going to place himself at a huge disadvantage. Do you know why? People will not notice the presence of God in your life while everything's going well. You know, anybody can be happy when they're rich. Actually, it's not true. But they can claim to be happy when they're rich. When things are going well, everybody's got a great big smile on their face. You have to be willing to be put into a place where things are not going well for you, for the world to see the difference. They say, wow, Gary lost his job and Matthew lost his job. Matthew's not a Christian and he's despairing. He's wondering how are his kids going to eat. But Gary, though he's less qualified than Matthew, though he may not have the opportunity to work, has got this strange contentment and joy. That's how people see God's fire in your life. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. Isn't it interesting? These people are crying out to a false god, and they're doing it from morning until noon. How many Christians would pray from morning until noon? Then what did they do? They began to dance around and shout. Oh, no. Christians, uh, I mean, we have to have a kneeler. You know, we have to have a book of recited prayers. We have to have a format. We have to have stained glass. The, the building doesn't have a steeple. It's not a church. You know, these people are more zealous about what they're doing than most Christians, and they're wrong. Have you noticed that people that read, I mean, prolific readers, people that can consume a 400-page novel in two days, have books everywhere and will not read the only book that counts? They'll read books about it, but they will not read this book. Why is that? Why is it that you are willing to read a book that tells you about the Bible 
but will not read the actual Bible. Could it be that we don't want to be accountable for having personal first-hand knowledge? That we would rather say, well, so-and-so told me this, and so-and-so told me that. Friends, you cannot play games with God. You cannot stand before Him and say, they lied to me, I'm sorry. Every man, every woman, especially every man and woman in this building, has a responsibility before the living God to not waver between two opinions, but pick a team and get on it. I want to firsthand clear up this misconception. Oh, well, that's your interpretation. Well, I'm offering any of you and anybody else that ever wants to come in this place, show me what your interpretation is. How else do you read? How long will you waver between two opinions? Pick one and serve him. See, that is something that men have hidden behind because they're scared the light will expose their darkness. I'm happy for the light to expose my darkness. It gets rid of it. It was dark when I walked in here this morning, but when I flipped on the light switch, I noticed all the darkness ran from the light. Same thing will happen in your life. You just have to pick a team and get on it. I've noticed people are willing to do more in the pursuit of error than they are in the pursuit of truth. Morning till noon and dancing. Now listen. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until the blood flowed. Now we go, oh my God, I can't believe they do that. You know what? But people will go to hell and back to justify their position outside of Jesus. They will write books. They will stand up on a soapbox and tell you all the reasons that they've chosen what they've chosen. They go through great lengths to justify their position. Even though God shows that His presence is not upon it. It's like a man told me one time, it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it would in the creation story when you examine it. That's a great example of people willing to commit themselves to a cause from morning till noon to shout, to dance, to cut themselves. Anything to make it work because the alternative, we cannot stand that there's a God and we might be accountable to Him. We need to be careful in our own lives that we don't run ten miles around the block to avoid what is right in front of our face. Have you ever noticed that when you blow it, all the thoughts that come to your mind, all the ways that the reasons it was okay to blow it, all the reasons you should be justified, you know, if I say something ugly to Mandy, you know, the first thoughts that naturally hit me is, wow, she shouldn't have said that to me. And did you see what she said the other day? You know? Yeah, I do that well. I've had a lot of practice. We will, we will cut ourselves with, with spears figuratively to please our flesh rather than to submit to the one true God that doesn't want anything but control of our lives. Sure doesn't want to hurt you. But I love Elijah's attitude. Is he intimidated by this? Pierce told me something that I thought was beautiful. Pierce said, I am compelled to spread the gospel. I feel no particular compulsion about whether or not you receive it. You know, the onus is on me to spread it. The onus is on you to accept it or deny it. Elijah's standing out there. He knows who God is. You know, he's not standing up to teach Israel for his benefit. He already knows the things he knows. What I'm teaching you this morning is something I'm well aware of. I'm not doing it for my benefit. I'm doing it for yours. 
So he wasn't intimidated. He could stand there and he could laugh and kind of poke fun at what they were doing. Sometimes when you see people sinning, you ought not be devastated by it. You ought to laugh. Go, you know, birds fly. That's what they do. Dogs bark. That's what they do. And sinners sin. It ought not be amazing. But he stole the TV set just to go get high. Yeah. And why does that surprise you? You know? Yeah, but she said this and then he said, yeah. You know, when you're controlled by a spirit of disobedience, it produces disobedience. But by the same token, it shouldn't surprise you when people are righteous. It should be the norm. When you do things that Jesus would do, that should be the norm. Okay, so the blood's flowing. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah came to all the people. Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. First step in your life. When you're realizing there's no rain in my life, there's no favor of God, the very first thing you need to do is admit you've been wavering between two opinions. I've known that there was a God. I've believed in Him, but I've never fully submitted to Him. You need to acknowledge that. Once you've acknowledged that, the next step is you need to try to repair the altar in your heart. Just like Elijah's doing, you need to go, you know what? Somewhere or another, I've got a bunch of garbage in me that shouldn't be there. And you begin to repair the altar of your heart. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Israel means prince with God. He set up twelve stones on this altar as a testimony reminding him of the time that God said, you will be a prince with God. You know what this is? As you repair the altar of your heart, you need to think about the Word of God and the good things that He says about you. And you need to encourage yourself with those things. Remind yourself of what God has called you to. There's not a person in here that's not called to glory and greatness. Before we leave, I'm going to tell you ten things that I love about you and you should love about yourself. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Have you noticed that when God does something, people say, it's a coincidence. You know, Matt prays, Lord, if you really want me to go to Texas, like I believe you're telling me to, would you encourage me somehow? I could use a new guitar. A new guitar shows up one week and one half of a week later. The person who gives him the guitar says, one week and a half ago, I was praying and I felt like the Lord told me to give you this. And yet there are Christians out there, Matthew's not one of them, that would go, that was a coincidence. You know? Now we know better. We, yeah, God won't do that today. We know better. But for whatever reason, all other things being equal, anything that happens that is bad in the world, we credit to God. You know, we say, oh wow, that tornado was an act of God. Yeah, how could He let that happen? But all the good things that happened, you know, 15 surgeries where people would have died and didn't, oh, that was medical science. You know, everything that is crappy, we attribute to the Creator. 
everything that is beautiful, we attribute to us or the creation. Elijah is standing up there. He's not, he's not satisfied with all things being equal. He's going to dig himself a hole. He's going to make it harder for fire to come upon his. Not once, not twice, but three times. Guys, this is when you have to be willing to be in a position that is humble, that is lowly, so that others have the opportunity to see Jesus triumph in your life. I preached last week about God loves an underdog. The whole Bible is the story of the underdog. You have to be willing to be made an underdog so that when you do get victory, everybody will know that it was God and won't claim it's a coincidence. He didn't call me because I'm great. He called me because I'm a nobody. That's why He called me. The reason we're in such humble beginnings is so that when something happens that is beautiful, people won't go, oh, well, that's because they had a business plan together. And that's because, you know, all of the money that they had stored, well, we have none. (laughs) You know? I'm not smiling up here because I'm standing on a hidden safe. You know? (laughs) I'm standing up here smiling because I'm in the spot Jesus told me to be in when He told me to be here. Kind of like Elijah when he said, go to the brook and I will feed you there. Well, he's told me to come to Sugarland, Texas, and I would be fed here. So whether it's got to be birds that fly it in or I drink it from a stream, I know it's coming. Back to Elijah. Third time. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know, O Lord, that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Sometimes we stand in the place of making God prove Himself to us. What reason did He ever give any of you to doubt Him at all? Say, oh, but one time I was in a church and they... That's right. That's because churches are full of bad people. They really are. And not all of them represent God. How many priests are there in this country right now that have charges brought against them? Those families are being destroyed and people will credit that to God. That's not God's fault. That's the work of some man. That is not God's fault. But it's the mercy of God that allows miracles to occur in your life to turn your heart back to Him. We had several testimonies this week. I sent out a newsletter. Just, just a newsletter because I believe Jesus told me to do and it was hard. I even received some resistance for it. That's good. Let's me know I'm on the right track. If you're not being resisted, something's wrong. The fruit from that, a friend in, in Louisiana, I found out he got saved. An abortion was abor- uh, uh, prevented. You know, all kind of neat things have happened from that. Other people have been encouraged to take steps of faith in what would seem like small areas to some and are huge for them, and God is showing Himself to be their God. See, God is looking for the opportunity to turn your heart towards Him. He's looking for the opportunity to nudge you in His direction. But He's not like the enemy. He doesn't come and do anything by force. He simply presents Himself and encourages you and then leaves it up to you. The only thing more powerful than God in this universe is your free will. That's it. You can stiff-arm God your whole life, and He'll stay at a distance from you. 
But if you're willing to open up, he'll prove himself in thousands upon thousands of ways. You've heard it say, said that, oh, that takes blind faith. God never requires blind faith from you. He's proven himself hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times to you. He's given you every possible reason to trust him so that your trust is not blind. You have something to base it on. If you don't have anything else to base it on, you have my word of what he's done in my life. But you do. You've got lots of things. The times that you believe he told you to put $23 in a plate and a week later 2000 show up. Now, here's the thing. There's a whole group of people out there that have perverted that message. They're telling you to put $23 in a plate so that 2000 will show up. That's not the way it works, friends. You put the $23 in the plate because Jesus told you to. Not caring whether you get a thing back from it, you're just trying to please Him. And then what He brings back to you, He does. You don't give to get. You give because God told you to give. I don't love you because I expect you to love me back. I love you because Jesus told me to love you. If you love me back, that just means we're both blessed. It's kind of like we say God's got unconditional love, and I do too, but with a few conditions, as long as you're nice to me. I love Jennifer, as long as the dishes are done, the clothes are, you know. No, you have to love Jennifer regardless. He did this to turn their hearts back. What a merciful God. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. The Bible says that God will do for you more than you could ask for or imagine. Elijah just asked for the thing to be lit. God sent so much fire in his life that it burned up the very elements that were there down to the soil. The water, the stones, the wood, the animal, it was all burned. God will send so much of himself in your life that you will shine like a star in the darkness of this this world. He will put his presence on you in a way that is undeniable to people if you will just give him the opportunity. He wants your heart to be fully committed. In fact, the Bible says that he's seeking those. He's, his eyes are ranging the earth, the Bible says, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Won't we stand up and be some of those? One man filled with the same spirit that Elijah had, just one, can face down 850 enemies of God. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that one of us can chase a thousand and two of us together would chase ten thousand. He just needs a willing volunteer. Somebody who's willing to go against the grain. Say, hey, the whole world is doing this. The preachers on TV are doing this. At the church where I was raised, they're doing this. My, my boss says do this. But I feel you telling me to do this. Something different. You have to be willing to change, and people naturally resist it. I was in a system where I believed I was saved because I could quote Romans 9, 10, and 10. I'd been baptized, and I sat on a pew. That was all very good, and it was like a starter kit for real Christianity. But I was not saved. And I was not born again. I was simply pacifying my conscience with a religious salve. In fact, I used to sit there and say, oh boy, I hope Jesus doesn't come back. You know, because there was a preacher telling me he'd come back at any minute. Now, if I was born again, that would not have been in my heart. When you have these thoughts that say things like, well, I hope hope that that Jesus is happy with me. I'm a good person. That is the first sign that you have not yet totally surrendered to His will. 
that doubt is there as a mercy from God to encourage you to go and find surety. Now, there are all kinds of people that have pacified your conscience out there. Kind of like you can be inoculated from a disease. I'd give you enough weak dead polio to keep you from getting polio. Well, you can go sit on first such and such church anywhere in this town, and they will give you enough weak dead Christianity to keep you from getting the real thing. Friends, the Jesus that I serve raises the dead. He heals the sick. He shows up with fire in people's lives. He's not simply an intellectual decision made by a man in a suit and a tie sitting in a church. Jesus should be real in your life. This is not just a matter of worship preference. Well, they like fast music. We like slow. I, God likes it all. He created it. I'm talking about His presence in your life. He did it to turn back their hearts. You remember the problem was no rain? When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! If we would just live the gospel in front of people, that would be the reaction. They would say, You know, I've been in church all my life, but I've never seen anybody like you. If we would just live this, they would go, I've been around this. I've been a Baptist my whole life. I've been a Methodist. I've been a Lutheran. I've been a anything, but I've been a Christian. My whole life, and I've never seen this. They will be willing to run to God because they have not experienced Him in the way that He desires for us to experience Him. You know, I read a book about Darwin. He was not a bad man. You know what? He wavered between two opinions, and you know what he did? He said, I cannot accept the Bible or the plain language of the text suggests that me and everyone, and this is a direct quote, that me and everyone I've ever known are going to hell. In other words, he didn't like the report, so he changed the message. Half the time, I'll tell you what my choice was. I was sitting in a very big church, a lot of people around me pacifying me, telling me I was all right, just don't go get all fanatical on me, you know. Just stay Whatever I was at the time, that's where all the resources are. That's what I was told. I'm sitting in that, that place. And all I could think about was this would mean all of these people in here are wrong. Yeah, and the Bible says very narrow is the way. doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means they were lied to just like you. And if you're going to be a lemming and follow, you can stay in the lie. There's a part of us that loves it. This is easy. We know what's coming next. We even have an order of service. We know exactly what to expect. We'll never be surprised, challenged, pricked, convicted, any of those things. I'm not telling you I've got a market on this thing. I'm not telling you. I, what I'm telling you is I'm totally surrendering it to Jesus. I'm going to get lots of this wrong. I'm telling you that up front. I'm trying. I'm going to do everything I can to get it right. I don't need to follow John Wesley's way. I don't need to follow John Calvin's way, not Martin Luther's way, not Ulrich Swingley, not John Huss. All of those are great men of God, and I'm proud of them. I need to do God's will for my life, and you do as well. You don't need to go camp out in some church where they say, here's the minimum. If you just do these things, we'll put your name on the roll. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. The Kishon Valley later became Gehenna. Does that ring a bell for anybody? It's where Jesus said, Hell's going to be like that place. It's where they burned refuse. 
day and night. That's where he slaughtered them. You want to come back to, to God? You, you feel an urging because you've noticed there's no rain in your life? There's no blessings from heaven in your life? You want that? First thing you need to do is realize you've wavered between two opinions and repent. Choose the right opinion. Dedicate yourself to it wholeheartedly. Second thing you need to do is the altar of your heart. You need to begin to build up with the Scripture that the Word says about you so that you can be strong. Third thing you need to do, as God begins to give you fire in your life, you need to kill all of the things that were a part of you that shouldn't be. All of us have got prophets to bail in our life. It might be the TV program that you watch. It, it, it could be all kinds of things. That's just that's an easy one. i got more than one TV in my house. I'm not preaching an anti-gospel TV here, okay? But what I'm trying to tell you is you need to put to death whatever is dedicated to a foreign God in your life. And you know what they are? I had a friend that was born again. He loved the Lord. And uh, six months into it, he realized that there was this special stash that he had kept. You know, I mean, he threw away all of us drugs and everything, but there was this really expensive special stash that he kept. And he began to think about it. Why am I keeping that? You know, I'm a Christian now. I'm not going to do that. But it was valuable to him. He didn't want to just throw it away. He said one of the hardest things he ever did was have to go kill this, this prophet to Baal. He went and poured it in the toilet and said, Lord, I'm giving all this up, even this, the special stuff I've been saving for you. <laughs> I mean, we laugh and it's true. It's funny. But Christians... Hide those kind of things away in their hearts. Say, Lord, you can be Lord over any area of my life, but not my finances. You can be Lord over any area of my life, but not my sexual life. You can be Lord over any area of my life, but not that one person I hate. I'm going to hang on to that. I need it. You know. Oh, and by the way, I don't really hate them. I just don't ever want to see them again. Don't want to think about them. But but I I don't hate them because we're Christians. We don't do that. You know. Every time I pray, his name comes up. I think about him. And it fills me with this bitterness and this rage. But I don't hate him. Okay. Yeah, I just strongly dislike him to the point where I wish he was in hell. But I don't hate him. <laughs> when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And his servant went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain came on Ahab as he rose to Jezreel. You want the rain of God in your life? You want heavenly blessings in your life? First, quit wavering between two opinions. Make up your mind. Serve God. Secondly, repair the altar that is your heart with the Word of God. Thirdly, put to death the prophet's that are dedicated in you, the things about your life that are dedicated to foreign gods, then and only then will you begin to see God's blessings coming into your life. But they will come. He saw a man's hand in the distance over the sea, and I know whose hand it was because the same hand has touched my life. On that note, turn to first or to John. We've got about ten minutes, and I'm going to close. John. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. A man's hand in the sea. The thing that was so powerful about this demonstration in Israel is that the people saw something that visually represented God. This helped them turn back. One of the problems that man has, quite honestly, is that it is too difficult to comprehend of a God that is everywhere all at the same time. It's kind of like trying to understand the oceans. You can go out and you can look at the water. You can even take a representative sample. But no matter how far you get, even out in space, standing on the moon looking back, you can't see all of the oceans at once. It's not possible for you. What God has done is He has poured Himself into a human being named Jesus as a representative of all of God so that you would have something that you could relate to, like Elijah on the mountain. You could have a clear and present choice. I see the fire of God in this guy. So much so that he's God's perfect representative. The Bible even declares he is God. God who can't be seen can be seen in this guy. He's the visible image of an invisible God. John 1:18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Are we talking about seeing God or knowing God? You know, he said nobody's ever seen him, but God's made, or Jesus has made him known. So which is it? The word really means kind of like, I go, hey, this is my point. Do you see it? You don't see it. You understand it. You comprehend. Nobody has ever been able to comprehend God, the Father, and all of His majesty. He is too big for a human being. But Jesus is making Him seeable, knowable, understandable to you. His very life, the words He did, the things that He said, His actions made God understandable to you, relatable to you. This is why we study His life. Because by studying the Son, we see the Father. That's, that's why. There's a chapel in Rome. And I can't say its name right, so I, I won't try. But they have kind of like the Sistine or some of the others, a beautiful mirror. Muriel? Is that right? Mural. Yeah, that other one's a lady somewhere in Mississippi, I think. On the ceiling. And it's, it's breathtaking, but the problem is you're too close to it. And as you stand and you look like this, you can't take it all in. And people were getting dizzy. So the owners of the chapel did something, a lot like God. They put on the floor a mirror so that you could sit in one place. Now, you're not looking at the actual painting anymore. You're looking at its representation, but it's in a form that you can do without getting dizzy. You can sit down, you can look, and you see it clearly. That's what Jesus is. He's not the Father. He's the representation of the Father in a form that you can look at without fainting. Does that make sense? I'm trying to make that understandable. Okay, now if Jesus is called the Christ, and that's what He is, and you are called His body or Christians, what are you supposed to be to people? A form of God that they can relate to. Now, I'm not calling you God. Don't you get that wrong. But what I'm saying is you're an ambassador for God. You're somebody that they can relate to and they can see God working in their life through you. Well, I don't know about you, but if I represent the pain care center who I work for, that's an important responsibility. 
If I represent the state of Texas, that's a pretty important responsibility. I'd probably watch my dress. I'd watch all kinds of things, right? If I represented this nation to a foreign nation, I would make sure that the things that I said and did accurately reflected the wishes of our president. Well, how much more so if you represent God himself to people? See, that's why it's important that we don't tear people down. It's why it's important that we show love for people. It's why it's important that we show the same mercy that God does. We are His representative to other people. Jesus is making God understandable to us, and we should make God understandable to people. Now, you, you're not the image. You're, you're just a representation, so you introduce them to Jesus. And by knowing Jesus, they know the Father. That's how they're one. That's why Jesus said they're one, and yet they're distinctly different too. There are a couple things that Jesus did in his life, and we're going to close with this, followed by the ten things that I love about y'all. In the book of John, while we're here, Jesus did miracles so that you would understand things about him. He was making the Father understandable to you. Well, in John 1, you see Nathaniel sitting under a sycamore fig tree. And Jesus said, There's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Daniel says, hey, how do you know me? How do you know that there's no guile in me? Nothing false is what that means. There's nothing false in him. He said, uh, you believe me because I, I told you that? I saw you while you were still sitting under the sycamore fig tree before you were here. In other words, Jesus had been watching him even when he wasn't aware of it. That miracle's in the book of John because God wants you to know he's had his eye on your life for some time. He's been examining you to see if there is anything false in you. Not so that He can throw you away. Not so that He can go, I knew there was something wicked in Cassidy. Step on her and stomp her in the ground. Not some old man with a big stick. He's looking to see, how can I help her? How can I show my mercy to her? How can I send someone to her that will uniquely relate to her and be drawn to me? God's willing to send one man across the ocean to another man just so that he'll reach out and find God. He determined the times, the places you would live so that you would find Him. We think our bad choices in life have made our life what it is. If that were true, all of us would have been dead a long time ago. God is allowing events to happen and He uses your choices and then He works them out for your good if you're inclined to be drawn towards Him at all. Because He's trying to reveal Himself to you in an increasingly powerful way. I don't know all about God I need to know. I don't have all of His power working in my life that I need. It's increasing. It's progressive. And it should be in yours too. You should be changing and growing. By the way, if something never changes, it's because it's dead. You know? The day you stop learning, the day you stop renovating your life, you've, you've ceased to be living. In John 2, or in John 1, you learn about Nathaniel. Because God is trying to show you He's had His eye on you for a long time, examining you. In John 2, we have the wedding feast at Cana. And Mary and Jesus have a little discussion, and then Jesus makes some wine. And do you remember what the master of the feast said in John 2? He said, wow, man, everybody else brings out the good stuff. And then after everybody gets drunk, you give them the, the ripple. He said, but you, 
You brought out the very best of last. God put that in there so you would understand your walk with Him will get better and better and better. You think it's good today? You just wait. You will grow in Him and His Spirit, His wine in your life will get better and better as it ages. He does not like the false religions give you something good up front just to hook you. And then when you get in, it's, you know, you got to beat your back with a whip and, you know, worship some goat god and hang hooks from your body or something stupid like that. In John 5, there was a man, and I want to read this one to you. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now, in Jerusalem, Near the Sheep Gate, there's a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been there an invalid for 38 years. Jesus heals this guy. Why is it mentioned that he was there for 38 years? Because Jesus wants you to know it doesn't matter how long you've been the way that you are. He can fix it. He said, well, I've been this way my whole life. I'm just not going to change. No, at the word of Jesus, you can change. The blind man's eyes can open. He put his age and his time in there so that you would be encouraged. You would know. If he had been that way 38 years and he was healed, even though I've been this way all my life, I too can be made whole again. Nothing. You're not damned to any situation. You're not condemned to it. Jesus can make you new again. He's a new beginning. In John 6, you see a little boy with five loaves and two fishes. And they feed 5,000 people. Why? You don't have anything to offer God. What you have is very little. But it will multiply when He puts His touch in it. I don't have a thing to give God. I've got a, a little garage in my house. And yet He will multiply this by His Spirit, by His presence in our midst. In John 11, you see a fifth reason. Lazarus was dead and had begun to stink. They said, oh Lord, don't go over there. There's a bad odor. And that's how we treat people sometimes. We say, oh, Jesus won't go near them, man. They stink. You know, she's a whore. Why would Jesus go near her? She's a prostitute. He's a crackhead. What were you doing around them? I'm hanging around them because that is who Jesus would hang around. He's not scared to get next to the guy that has the stench of death upon his life. Because soon as the man accepts his word, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man lived again. And you know what? Then he began the process of taking off the death clothes. And he began clothing himself with Christ. We need to be willing to be around those that stink of death. Because Jesus will give them life. And it does not matter if you yourself are dead and have begun to stink. One word from Him that you're obedient to will bring you life. I want to tell you ten reasons that I love y'all. And we're going to close. I did good. I kept this under an hour. Guys, when you look in the mirror, the altar of your heart should be repaired. That's an architectural in itself right here that that Bible sits on that. <laughs> Get out your pens if you're going to write. Romans 8 
14 says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I love each of you because as you are led by the Spirit, you are declared by God to be His very Son. You are sons of God if you're led by His Spirit. Now, I know there are churches out there that teach you you're a peasant and there's a hierarchy between you and God, but the Bible says if you are led by His Spirit, you are His very sons. I love you because you're sons of God. Ephesians 3, verse 6 says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. You are an heir of God. Now, some of you know what an heir is. Recently, those kind of things have happened, right? Do you know what that means? That means that everything that God has also belongs to you. I love you because you're a son of God and you are an heir of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible declares you to be the very righteousness of God. You say, oh, I'm not a good person. The Bible says you have become the righteousness of God. I love you because you're a son. I love you because you're an heir of God. Everything that is His belongs to you. I love you because the Bible says you are God's righteousness. I don't care whether you see it when you look in the mirror. It's what the Bible says about you. Sometimes it's a matter of perspective. Ephesians 2.6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You may think that you're sitting in a chair in Sugarland, Texas, in a garage. But the Bible says that in God's eyes, you are seated on a throne with Jesus because you love Him, you're submitted to Him, and it's as if you were sitting next to God on a heavenly throne. Friends, I want you to remember that next time somebody's made you feel worthless. You're seated with Christ. I've got an aunt that has got a little problem. This woman is beautiful. She's, she's an awesome person. Her problem is her whole life people have made her feel like she was dirt. And if she would just be inclined to follow Jesus, she would be seated in the heavenly realms. He doesn't care where you've been. But church people have let her down. They've told her that she's bad, that she's filthy. I tell you what, there would be no stronger punishment. No stronger punishment than for those kind of church people that have told her she's bad and she's filthy. This is what Jesus meant when He said, don't you dare hinder one of these little ones from coming to Me. I know everybody thinks He's talking about children. He's not. He said, you have to become like a child to enter My kingdom, and anyone who tries to hinder these little ones, children who are trying to come to Me, figurative children, would be better that they're thrown in the ocean with a millstone around their neck. Guys, my aunt is important to Jesus. He will leave you 99 to go after her. I'm just using her as an example. A lot of people fall into that category. You're a son. You're a co-heir. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're seated in heavenly realms. Number five. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of the darkness and into His wonderful light. Guys, you are a royal priesthood. I don't care what other people... That you have to be a seminary graduate. You have to wear an ugly black 
coat with a stupid white collar to be a priest. Jesus never wore those things and He was a priest. The apostles never wore those things and they were priests. And the Bible declares you to be a priest. And i got other news for you. Aside from the hundreds of saints, thousands of saints that are already in heaven, the Bible calls you a saint of God. But don't write that. That was bonus material. You're a royal priesthood. Number six. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Now, when you hear people say that, they say, how could you eat that Big Mac? You're God's temple. How could you smoke that dope? You're God's temple. How could you drink that wine? You're God's temple. And they just use it to beat you down. God intended that to be an encouragement to you, not a discouragement to you. Guys, you are the temple of God. He lives in you. He's not just in the highest heavens. He's in the heart of the smallest child that cries out to Him. It's like a worldly wise man said to a little girl in the 16th century. He said, little girl, I see that you're going to church. She says, yes, sir, I am. He says, do you serve a big God or a little God? She said, both. He said, really? How's that? He said, she said, he's big enough that all the heavens can't contain him and he's small enough to live in my little heart. And that's awesome. That is awesome. You are a temple of God. When you look in the mirror, you need to smile and go, Wow! God's presence dwells in me. I'm not a nobody. I'm not, some, I'm not yesterday's garbage. I am somebody in Christ, even if the world thinks I'm a nobody, because I am His temple. Ephesians 1.18 is our seventh one. It says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. God sees you as His inheritance. Sometimes men and women look forward to a day when what is their parents becomes theirs. God is looking forward to the day when He can see us as His inheritance. He's longing to inherit us. It seems like the, re- the, the roles are reversed. He longs for you. He's going to inherit you. You know how? Because Jesus is going to complete His work in you and then hand you to the Father. The eighth one. Colossians 1, 10 through 12. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Here it is. Being strengthened with all power. You're not only sons of God, you're strengthened with all of God's power. You just need to be aware of it. It's like having an M16 at your disposal and just not knowing it at times. Why did you run from that mouse? You got an M16. God's power is at your disposal. This is how Elijah can stand. And he can say, there's 850 prophets over there and all Israel is against me. And I am not scared to stand up and say, how long will you waver between two opinions? Because he had all God's power at his disposal. It's just used at God's discretion. You are not weak. You are not insignificant. You are not beat down. You are seated in the heavenly realms and you have God's power at your disposal. Number nine. Through these he has given us... This is Second Peter 1.4. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature 
and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Y'all, that is so heavy that I don't even know how to present it. God has a divine nature. He is deity. And He allows you to participate in His deity. Do you know how? When you submit your way of doing things and take up His, you become one with Him. You are a participator in His deity. Now, why would somebody go serve a goat god or, you know, ride a bicycle with a stupid tie on for two years? Go work at Albertsons. 2 Corinthians 5, 19-20 is the tenth reason that I love you. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. When I look at you, I don't see you anymore. I see Jesus, because you are ambassadors for Jesus. When you look in the mirror, you should see that you're a son. You're a co-heir. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are seated in the heavenly realms. You are a holy and royal priest. You are a temple of God, His very dwelling place. You are God's inheritance. You are strengthened with all power. You are a participator in His divine nature. And you are an ambassador of God. Just a bonus scripture is Galatians 3.26. It says that you are clothed with Christ. It's as if you cease to become be Matthew Pero. You took off that suit and you put Jesus on you. So that when God looks at you, He's pleased with you just like He's pleased with Jesus. See, we've been told about a cross and a grave and all of these things. That's the place the Gospel starts. But the truth is, all of that should be propelling you. It should be building the altar of your heart to be a place where God's fire dwells. I love each of you. I'm excited that each of you were here today. My words cause you any problems. I'm sorry, they're not my own. They're really not. I'm looking forward to a day that there are lots of people here, but each one of you are just as important to me as if there were thousands. The calling upon my life is one life at a time. One life at a time. It's like the little boy's walking down the beach and he's throwing sand dollars back. And people are discouraging him. He said, you can't save them all. There's sand dollars over here. There's no way you can save them all. He said, I saved that one. You have to start somewhere. Be willing for God to change your life. Be willing to be different. Have the whole nation of Israel think you're crazy and all the prophets of Baal in your life taunting you. Be willing to give God the opportunity to show His approval is on you and He will do it. And in the 